good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. For years, experts have been asking Americans to be concerned about cyber threats, the same way we're concerned about any other threat to our national security. But for many Americans, it's really hard to visualize exactly what a cyber attack would look like in the real world and for their own lives. The devastation of a terrorist attack is easy to visualize, but what kind of real damage can hackers do? Well, now it might be a bit easier to visualize that. Earlier this month, a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline shut down a major artery that carries fuel to millions on the East Coast. This sparked a wave of panic buying and concerns of price gouging. And experts say it's just one in a wave of recent cyber attacks. Here to talk about what this tells us about the seriousness of cyber threats is a member of Michigan's congressional delegation who has spent a lot of time studying these kinds of issues. Alyssa Slotkin is a Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District, and she is chairwoman of the Intelligence and Counterterrorism Subcommittee within the House Committee on Homeland Security. Congresswoman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start with what happened last week, uh, how it happened, and how vulnerable we are to these kinds of things. My suspicion is you're going to say way more vulnerable than most of us think. Yeah, um, unfortunately, and actually we're, we're heading into another uh, briefing in a couple of hours about this at the Homeland Security Committee. Um, unfortunately, I think um, the average American may have been woken up by the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, but the, the, the fact is that we are exceptionally open um, to cyber attack of all kinds, sometimes just for money. This ransomware attack on Colonial was actually meant just to get money. They sort of strangely apologized for the strategic impact um, of their attack. But other times it's for disruption. And we know that our critical infrastructure, think about not just our pipelines, but our electrical grid. Think about the Sioux locks. Think about all the things that kind of make our country work that we don't really think about. Are, they are exceptionally vulnerable. And, you know, we've been working for a long time now, but now in a much more public way, to educate people and also make sure our state and local governments are actually prepared for this kind of attack. So, so I wonder if you can talk a little about what's changing right now. Is it that there are just more people who are focused on this kind of disruption and skilled at it and able to do it? Or is it that the infrastructure that we have and the systems that we've built are becoming more vulnerable to these kinds of things, either because of their age or because we aren't we aren't keeping up with uh, you know technology and innovation. No, I think actually, so it, it's kind of a combination of both. But um, the, the truth is, we have lots of people around the world um, in a very global way who are becoming much more skilled and who make sport of trying to get inside systems. I mean, literally, we ha- we sponsor at the Defense Department hackathons where we get these hackers to attempt to bust into the Department of Defense system just so we can know our own vulnerabilities. And these folks are, you know, they're, they are brilliant. They are smart and they are, uh, they have intent. But then the fact is that a lot of our infrastructure actually has modernized. Um, the way we control our infrastructure is modernized and it's more online. It's more networked. 
Um, and in general, we think that's a good thing, except it just exposes all these vulnerabilities. And like a small government you know, office or a small uh, company isn't really on the forefront of cybersecurity and things are constantly changing. So it's kind of like, a, a, you know, two things that are working against us to make us exceptionally vulnerable. Hmm. So uh, the ransomware attacks mm-hmm. where hackers demand payment to release data and control of systems, as you point out, this attack last week was not about the disruption. It's just about right. just about money. Um, but but are there are there people who who would disrupt, you know, the, the air traffic control system, for instance, if they could uh, as a way of I mean, is it is this similar to, you know, brick and mortar, you know, violent terrorism in the sense that 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 sometimes the motivation is going to be to actually harm Americans rather than just like get money? Well, you know, we have to assume that people who are probing our infrastructure have bad intent. We can't assume that they're just looking for money. Um, and as we saw with Colonial, it doesn't matter if you're just looking for money. It has a strategic impact. Mm-hmm. It, it Literally, we had gas shortages on the East Coast because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to assume that people have bad intent. And we need to basically modernize the way we protect our infrastructure for you know, the 2021 and 2022 era. We can't just sort of say, well, it'll be okay. So uh, there's a a couple of things that I think we can do. um, But most importantly is we need people who will maintain infrastructure to get some help with cybersecurity, to have some sort of cyber hygiene, you know, uh, you know, seal of approval if they're going to, for instance, manage the electrical grid in a community. And Mm. a lot of these companies have really modernized, particularly in Michigan. They are aware of the problem. But I think that, you know, we have to realize that small communities, including in Michigan, have responsibility for people's personal data, right? Small communities of 10,000 people, 5,000 people. The town supervisors come to me and they say, I I don't really know what to do. I'm a part-time town supervisor. I don't even have, you know, real sort of, uh, skill with computers? How am I supposed to keep people safe? And we've been working on getting state and local people the resources that they need to deal with this, not just the big, big Fortune 500 companies. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She's a Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District. Uh, we're talking about the cyber attacks last week that disrupted a major oil pipeline on uh, the East Coast. Uh, and uh, caused a little bit of panic and some panic buying and price gouging, kind of things that could lead to economic disaster. Of course, the people who did this were really just looking for money themselves. But we're talking about uh, the more broad universe of uh, cyber attacks and people who would like to launch them against uh, against this country. Um, so talk about, from an intelligence standpoint, how members of Congress are, are thinking about this issue uh, and, and trying to push back? So there's a couple of things. I mean, like everything, there's a, a conversation about offense and there's a conversation about defense. Hmm. Most important thing is defense, right, because that we can control here in, you know, in, in the state, in our communities, just making sure that we have the best cybersecurity that, frankly, money can buy, or that we have, we can get access to. Making sure we're practicing, right? We're like using sort of the time we have now to practice what would happen if in Lansing we had a major cyber attack on the state. 
What would happen if in the middle of winter there was an attack on Michigan's electrical grid and 26 elderly people froze to death in their homes? You know, like the military, we need our local officials to be exercising these scenarios because they're more and more likely. So that's defense. Um, We want to make sure the state and local folks have the resources to do that. On offense, obviously, this is the stuff that's in the shadows. It's what we do privately. We don't announce what we can do to other uh, countries. And we do have an offensive capability to go after, let's say, groups in China or in Russia. But here's the thing. It's complicated by the fact that, A, first of all, we can't talk about it. So American citizens often feel like their government is doing nothing. But secondly, you know, we in the United States don't really have a doctrine for cyber war. Right. We don't have we, we believe in proportional response. And we're a democracy. So if 26 elderly people in Michigan um, were frozen, freezing to death in their homes because of, you know, the electrical grid going down, we're the United States of America. Are we going to go and do that to you know Russia or to China? Are we going to attack civilians um, and let them pay the consequences? It gets really sticky and complicated really quickly. Not to mention the legal issues around it. So, uh, you, you what it, what the public I think sees is like people can hack us, people can attack us in the cyber realm, and there's no response. Um, and what uh, I will tell you is. Yes, there is some response. It's just it's not um, it, it is not we're not there as a nation, as a government on how to respond to these attacks effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to change the subject just a little and sure. talk a little bit about uh, President Biden's visit yesterday yes. in Michigan for the rollout of the Ford F-150 Lightning electric truck. And you yeah. were there. Uh, you had a conversation with the president about uh, vulnerabilities in our supply chain to build yeah. these these vehicles. What did you say to him, and what was his response? Yeah, well, first of all, it was actually a surprisingly um, emotional day. I was, I was um, getting, I don't want to say choked up, but I, I felt the emotion of the moment because we're at, you know, a, a big plant that, that's modern, that's going to have this, you know, production line for this amazing vehicle, which is pretty, pretty awesome, I must say, um, the vehicle itself. But I think what I chose to talk to the president about was about, hey, we can build the the coolest vehicles in the world, um, and certainly we want them to move towards electric. Mm -hmm. But if we do not get our house in order on our supply chains, on the component parts that go into pretty much every car, Mm -hmm. we're going to constantly be hamstrung and be at the will of, in particular, the Chinese and others, uh, you know, who provide some of these vital pieces. And I flagged for him that while we were celebrating at Ford yesterday, there are three plants, including Grand River in Michigan that I represent, that are currently not running. They are not producing vehicles because they are missing 14 cent microchips, Hmm. 14 cents that control the airbags and the brakes and other things. And I, I, I urge the president to say it's not just about making these vehicles here, which of course we love. It's about making sure the component parts, the rare earth minerals, the batteries, the stuff that make it powerful and, and like move us into the 21st century, we got to bring some of that manufacturing here or at least diversify it out of just single source to China, who is just so dominating us. And I likened it to, and this is the analogy that I use when I explain where we are on electric vehicles. Um, it's like the space race back against the Soviet Union. You know, they frankly, they got to space first and the United States said, holy moly, and we got to work. Mm. And we doubled down, and we were the first ones to land on the moon, right? 
So that's the moment we're in right now. China's ahead of us on electric vehicles, but I wouldn't bet against the United States ever. We can absolutely surge forward and become the dominant player in electric vehicles, but not if the uh, component parts of the spaceship are made in China. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's where we are, and I just wanted to have that conversation. He gets it. But we got to see this through. That's a big shift, too. I mean, you're not talking about something that can happen overnight. I mean, we've become accustomed to the idea of importing all of these things uh, over several decades. Right. It's You're very right. But you know what? If the global pandemic and the shocks to the supply chain of the past year have not given us impetus to do it, I honestly don't know what will. Hmm. I mean, like, literally, I sat in the middle of the night bargaining with Chinese middlemen in rural China in line at a factory um, trying to get a 78-cent mask in for our hospitals, for our nurses. Um, We we are lucky that we didn't have a run on antibiotics Hmm. um, during this pandemic. We are lucky um, that right now, uh, you know, our military has all the equipment it needs to be ready. I, I just... I think that um, I certainly have kind of gotten religion on this issue in the past year. Um, I never thought of the national security importance of our supply chains until um, we were just absolutely hamstrung by the Chinese government on so many critical products. So if we don't do it now, we're not going to do it. And then we just shouldn't be complaining when China China's eating our lunch on electric vehicles. And I, I'm just I'm not OK with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to change the subject again here and talk a little about what's going on in Israel with regard to Palestine. What do you think the United States response should look at to what we're witnessing right now? Well, I think, you know, what I feel has been happening behind closed doors, just from my connections to the administration, is an attempt to have a conversation with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu Um, and move him to a ceasefire. Um, I think most folks in the administration thought we were aiming for that uh, after last weekend. Um, Now we're hearing Thursday, meaning tomorrow. We need to to move to that. Um, I I think the the military objectives that the Israelis um, are working on have been uh, met, and I think at this point we need to do the right thing and make sure to preserve civilian life. Everyone has the right to defend themselves, um, and, you know, the, the rockets that were shooting out of Gaza were shooting at civilians. And it was lucky that 90 percent of those rockets were intercepted. Um, so both sides need to respect the dignity of human life. Um, and we need to bring this to a conclusion. Uh, in general, though, do you think that there is an equivalent between what Israel is doing, this response, which, I mean, I, I think by any measure is outsized, uh, and and the threat itself. I mean, I, I think I think you don't have to question Israel's right to exist or defend itself to question the methods that it's using here to do that, and whether whether it's gone so far beyond defense uh, as to offend the idea of of, you know, self-defense and, and to, to venture into the, ter- the territory of, uh, of aggressor. Uh, do, 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 you, do you agree with that? Well, I think we are deeply hamstrung by the fact that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu sees this conflict as the way to save his political life. Um, and I will be honest, I, I have been um, deeply disheartened by the lack of... Um, 
consideration by the prime minister to the conversations the administration has been having um, in an attempt to have them privately. But I think um, I, I think that you're you're starting to see it now from the administration uh, kind of seep out. Right. This conversation about um, targets in the Gaza Strip, the, particularly the journalists, um, the buildings um, where we don't have, uh, at least on our side, information about the the. Um, you know, Hamas assets using those buildings. And I, I think um, I'm hoping that the prime minister um, ends this swiftly because the longer this goes on, uh, the more problematic it is for our long-term relationship with an allied country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it is painful to watch. It is painful to watch. Yeah. Uh, Representative Debbie Dingell recently withdrew her support of a resolution that advocates for human rights for Palestinian children. It's H.R. 2407. What's your stance on that bill? So, you know, I I will be honest. There's so many bills flying around that I just learned of this one this morning because it was in the news. Um, I know that there have been a ton of letters. There's a ton of things. My my feeling on this issue, just as someone who, you know, has worked in and on the Middle East for a long time, is I tend to make my own statements. I tend to not bandwagon on anyone's kind of one letter or piece of legislation. I hadn't seen Betty's um, piece. Um, I think that that there is, unfortunately, that this um, issue becomes a sort of political football. Mm-hmm. And I tend to I, I've been just making very clear that I put my out I put out my own statements. I work on my own letters to the administration. I have my private contacts with them that I use um, to make my point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Congresswoman Melissa Slotkin, Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District. It's always really great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the declining birth rate in the United States and why so many more people are choosing not to have children. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.